CRA audits your taxes. It's purely compliance. There are other types of audits, ISO, if you've worked in manufacturing operations. Virtually every corporation that's traded on the stock exchange would have an internal audit function. Now that's different from the external auditors. So most people are familiar with the external auditors who audit your financial statements. But what they're looking at is, are those risk areas managed? So are they are they operating, do they have the controls in place in two respects? Is a control implemented to mitigate the risk? Um, and is it working? As a CEO, you, you, you know, it's useful for you too, because you helps you sleep at night, right? So you might bring somebody in to say, just look at our financial controls. The number one thing that disappears in a company is cash. Yeah. No, now, most, sure. there's not a lot of cash around anymore, but, uh, but, but asset misappropriation is the number one fraud. Hey, investors, you're listening to the Investing to Win podcast, the show dedicated to empowering investors to achieve financial freedom and live your best life. This show is committed to offering honest conversation between investors, comments, and strategies, real-time market updates, and professional guidance to achieving financial freedom. Investing doesn't have to be super hands-on or complicated. We're all about passive investments with real gains, so you have freedom of time and money. Your host is none other than Garrett Wong, who brings decades of experience in buying, renovating, and managing cash flow investment properties. Thanks for being here and get ready to invest to win. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Garrett Wong, your host of the Investing to Win podcast. Today, I have a special guest, Brian Brown, who's on the show with me today. Brian comes to us as a retired chief audit executive, uh, several companies, great career, uh, loves serving on some boards right now. And uh, today we're going to be talking about audits, what they are and how risks are with companies. And we'll see where it takes us. Brian, how are you? Great. Yeah. Thanks, Garrett, for the invitation. Uh, I love to talk about internal audit. That's what we're talking about, internal audit. And I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, any chance I get, um, it's a hidden jewel in a lot of organizations. And a lot of organizations don't have internal audit. That yeah. So uh, it's a good opportunity. Perfect. For how about those jets? Yeah, right? how about those um, jets behind you? No, uh, currently, as of the recording, we are in first place, but uh, we'll see if that backfires on us. <laughs> yeah, never get, let's not get ahead of ourselves yeah. here. Um, I thought I'd start with, uh, why don't you just introduce yourself to the audience formally and sort of give a little bit of a background of uh, who you are and um, sort of an intro so the audience gets to know you a little bit. Okay, sounds good. Sure. So as Garrett said, I've, I'm retired chief audit executive, so that's the vernacular, the title that's used in Canada and in North America generally for the head of internal audit. Uh, so I led the internal audit function with five organizations in Canada, uh, including a couple of our largest companies, Sears Canada in Toronto, uh, the long since departed, of course, but was a great company back in the day, uh, Great West Life uh, in Winnipeg. Um, UGG, for those who remember the old grain company, Agricor United, and uh, the Canadian Grain Commission, federal government agency uh, in the last 10 years of my career. So over my 35-year career, about 25 of it was spent leading internal audit functions. Now, that that may sound boring, but that it's not at all boring. Um, and uh, it involves risk and ethics and fraud and working with boards of directors and uh, executive management. I was part of the executive management committee for these organizations. So yeah, it's been an exciting career. I want to add a couple things though, because in addition to the to a career like that, I also 
uh, spent a lot of my time outside of work um, in various organizations. And I highly encourage people to do that. Get outside the box, outside of your work environment and get involved in other things. So for me, like a lot of people that started with my kids when they were little, you know, and their activities, I said, I'm going to get involved in them. So yeah, I coached, I got on boards of community centers and sports organizations and all kinds of stuff just to kind of support them and also see what, what the program was like for my kids. Um, but that led to all kinds of things. I got involved with my professional association, the Institute of Internal Auditors, which is a global organization. Most professions have a governing body. That's it for us, the IA. So I was on their global board for a while in North America. I founded IA Canada back in 2006. Um, which gave us a Canadian entity. And I got involved with other associations and organizations. And uh, and that's continued after I, my kids left. I was able to spend more time doing that outside of work. But that gets you outside your box, you know. So I would say, say I had a career in internal audit. So I'm an auditor in a sense. But I've been a board member. I've worked on marketing, advocacy, and all kinds of other things outside of uh, work through those other aid, uh, organizations. So I highly encourage people to do that. So now that I'm, I retired in 2019 from the last job I ever ha hoped to have, but I've been doing, I have my own little independent consulting practice. So I teach courses, do a bit of consulting and I'm on four boards right now. So the Manitoba Agricultural Services Corporation board, where I chair their audit committee of the board. I'm on two major charities, the Canadian Center for Child Protection based in Winnipeg and Mary Mounding based in Winnipeg and uh, the Institute of Corporate Directors, which is the professional association locally well, it's a national and locally for um, people who are on boards of directors who want to be on boards of directors. So so I now spend most of my time on the other side of the table for management um, and uh, get a different perspective on things. So in today's conversation, we can talk about both sides as it relates to internal audit, risk and governance and so on. Yeah, so. absolutely. No, thank <laughs> you for that. Uh, before we get into uh, internal audits, I I'm curious, what... Uh, now that you're retired, uh, what brought you to the other side and serving on boards? Well, I had done a lot of it while I was working. Like I said, community centers, sports, and I have some horror stories about those if we have time. But anyway, um, and, uh, and you know, my business experience was of value, you know. So if I was on a sports board, I'm not necessarily passionate about the sport, but I know how to run an organization well and how to manage risk and finances and those kinds of things, right? So, and I actually just enjoyed being on boards. I found it an interesting perspective. So, uh, so that was something I wanted to do um, when I retired. I've been faculty for another thing I've done is uh, while I was working for the last 20 years for an organization called the Directors College, which trains people to be bo on boards of directors. Um, and uh, I just like that perspective. I found it fascinating. Um, so, uh, so when I retired, I figured that's something I'd like to do more of, right? So I've, I've expanded that and hope to continue adding a couple more. I have capacity right now to add a couple more boards. So if any of your audience members need a board member, particularly one that's good at oversight of risk, audit, finance, um, I chair two governance committees. I'm on three audit committees uh, of board. Those are subcommittees of the board. Uh, so boards generally have committees, subcommittees. Um, to look after the more detailed work. So um, I just found the work interesting, right? So Okay, well, we'll definitely, uh, we're going to be putting your uh, uh, information into the show notes. So if anybody wants to reach out, certainly that's going to be a great option. Let's, uh, let's move into audits themselves. I mean, for me, 
before I even knew you existed. And, uh, you know, obviously we were introduced mm-hmm. by a good friend of mine. Um, I always thought of audits as something with CRA, right? Uh, Canada Revenue Agency. Can you yeah. kind of, well, I mean, nobody wants to get audited, right? Um, but you're talking about a, a different type of audit. Can you kind of explain to the audience what your type of audit entails? Yeah, so internal audit is something that organizations have, and they're large organizations. And I would say any organization with a, you know 300 or more probably employees. So virtually every corporation that's traded on the stock exchange would have an internal audit function. And... Uh, um, so these are generally employees of the company or their contracts with the company. So it could be outsourced, but it, what they do. So, so there are, they operate within the company and essentially they report to the board of directors and the senior management team. So they report to the audit committee of the board. So it's like your own in-house audit function. So what they do uh, now that's different from the external auditors. So most People are familiar with the external auditors who audit your financial statements. So those are completely independent people who work for another company, a firm like PW or Deloitte or you know so on, right? So they come in and they audit your financial statements. Their audit is limited to your financial statements, right? They want to provide us just a comment or provide you with assurance that the statements are reasonably accurate and your stakeholders or funders or whatever, right? So that's what they do. CRA audits your taxes. It's purely compliance. There are other types of audits, ISO, if you've worked in manufacturing operations, they'll have their own type of audit to ensure that you're complying with your standard operating procedures. The internal audit I'm talking about is much broader. So it's risk-based within an organization. And it, the idea is kind of twofold. First of all, to provide the board and the audit committee with some assurance that those risks are reasonably well managed so that the organization will achieve its objectives. So we're not just talking about financial risks. Financial statements and so on um, are one area of risk, but we could be talking about operations. You know, I work for a grain company. I work for a financial service. I work for a retail company. So, you know, the risks were all over the place. Finance was only a small part of the risk profile, right? So it's all these other operations. So you look at the risks and what they do is they provide assurance to your board and your senior management that risks within the organization are reasonably well managed, but they also provide recommendations on ways to improve, but not just managing risk, but efficiencies and um, efficiencies. Um, they look, they might look at compliance with internal policies, even laws, regulations, uh, assets are protected and so on. So it, you know, it, it could be all encompassing, but it's a fascinating profession because you get to see a whole organization, right? You get to see all aspects of it, including even IT. I didn't mention IT, but, you know, uh, I'm not an IT expert, but I've overseen many audits of IT. Um, so it, whatever your risk area is, these internal auditors will work on and find out how the controls, how well they're being managed. Um, you know, is it reasonably contr- well controlled? And they make me recommendations to tighten it up. So you said people don't like auditors. And I think the perception there, especially when it comes to internal audit, is if I go back, I would go back like 30 years and say internal audit used to be very much the cop role in a company. So it was very much like, let's find out who's not following the rules and then get them in trouble, right? And so that's not the way it's evolved. It's evolved with the way when governance evolved in the late 90s and then after Enron and everything else, you know, governance itself evolved 
internal audit evolved too and became much more part of the governance structure of an organization. So it's a long-winded answer, but but it's internal internal in that it reports to the board and the CEO or the you know the executive of the company of the organization. Um, now, but it could be outsourced. It could be contracted to any of the big firms or independent people, guys like me who do it. I don't I don't do it by the way. But there are people like me who are retired that do that kind of work on a contract because um, some, some organizations don't want to employ people to do it, right? They don't want to add to their FTE count, so they'll contract it out. But, uh, but it's the same role, right? Reporting to the board and providing the board with that type of assurance. So very valuable. So now that I'm on boards and I'm on audit committees and I'm chairing audit committees, it usually reports to audit committees. I'm very happy to have a good, strong internal audit function. Because I'm getting feedback from them. They're independent. They don't work. They work for the organization, but they don't work for any of the operations they're auditing, right? So I'm getting independent assurance that things are working well. They're all, management's getting good advice on things that they could do better. But I'm getting that type of assurance as an audit committee member um, that uh, that management's doing a pretty good job in these areas, right? And that the risks are managed. So, uh, so. Um, you know, I feel pretty good about having an internal audit function. Yeah, l- let me stop you there for a second. There's there's a lot to unpack there. So, for the uninitiated like myself, um, who thought that an audit was either something you had to cringe away from or a financial audit, when you speak about an internal audit, I mean literally, it could be anything within a company in almost any type of industry. Is it kind of is it the board or the CEO that's determining what type of audit they want and what area of the company? Or is it like, I just want to have an internal audit and somebody comes in and sort of assesses in a general sense? Like how? So, so the internal audit functions. So there are international standards for inter- the practice of internal auditing. Okay. So, so you have to do a plan. You have to have a plan, a, an annual or a multi-year plan. And the audits that you do are risk-based, okay? So so there's a risk assessment done. So if your organization has a risk, so a lot of organizations have an enterprise risk management function or something, so the risks are identified. So it's to be risk-based, so it focuses on the risk. So the audits um, are uh, proposed usually by the internal audit function. They might be suggested by management saying, we want you to look at this area or that area. But they're ultimately approved by the board. The audit committee of the board would approve the plan and the allocation of resources and you know the budget for the internal audit function and so on. You know, so it's a collaborative exercise between management, the board, and the internal audit function to determine what to audit. Because you can't, you know, if 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 if, if you're on a, if you're on a board of an organization or the executive team, you're focused on kind of the top ten principal risks to the to the company, right? You, those are the big ones, and then you've got lot, there's a thousand other risks in the organization that the people below you are managing on a day-to-day basis, but you're kind of focused on the big ones, the top 10, right? Well, you can't expect internal audit to audit the top 10 every year. Like they're going to pick pieces and parts of those and audit them over some period of time, right? Unless you have a huge budget, you're not going to get that every year, right? So, so it's a collaborative. Who decides? Management has a senior management has input. The internal audit function will propose a plan. Um, and the board ultimately will approve the plan. Okay. Um, and the number of audits get depends on the size of the organization, the amount of budget there is, the number of employees there are, and so on, right? So, so uh, 
Okay, so maybe maybe walk me through a tip. I know it's hard. You've given me so much information what a typical would be, but give me an example of a company that's been running. Let's say they have 150 plus employees. Uh, they have a board. Um, trying to think, maybe they're not publicly uh, traded, but they do have a board and a CEO. Uh, they're a $10 million company and they, uh, internal audits is a regular function of theirs. So now we're, let's say in year 10 and they're coming in or you're, you've now, you've been brought in to, you know, bring a contractor in for them. What would that internal audit look like? Yeah, that, I mean, it's a hard thing to generalize. I, I know, because but... Uh, internal audit is very adaptable to the organization. But they're, again, they're typically employees or the head of internal audit, like me being a chief audit executive. I was always an employee and I had staff that did audit work. Um, the um, um, What does a typical audit look like? Um, it's hard to say. They, you know, Usually it starts, once the plan is approved, you'll pick an area to start with. So you might start with a particular audit. It might be a, a particular operation or, um, you know, a, a location or an office or something. Um, so when you say, pick a typical one. So uh, one of the organizations on the board of runs a, a lending operation. So there's like a credit management, a credit function, right? Like a bank kind of thing. And they focus on, um, on small um, clients that have trouble getting financing from regular banks and credit unions. So the audit, the internal auditor would, first of all, work out the specific scope and objectives of the audit with the management of that area, typically. Like, what are the specific things we want to look at? Because you can't look at everything. You don't have time. You know, you'd be there for years looking at everything. So which are the specific risks within that function that you want me to look at or that I should look at, right? So they usually work with that area and kind of finalize what the objectives are in the scope of the audit. And then they'll develop, they'll do interviews with employees and staff and others. They'll do testing. They'll test transactions or test whatever it is that they should test. Um, they review files. They'll, you know, look, they'll, uh, and, and, but they'll also look outside. They'll look for kind of best practices or leading practices to kind of compare it against. But what they're looking at is, are those risk areas managed? So are they are they operating, do they have the controls in place in two respects? Is a control implemented to mitigate the risk? Um, and is it working? Because management may say, well, we have a control to mitigate, let's say you're a lending operation, you may have a control to, to mitigate the risk of defaults, right? So a client may just walk away from the loan, right? So that's a risk. That's a significant risk for any kind of lending operation, right? So, so what do you have in place to mitigate that risk, right? So what do you have to prevent that? Well, we have a preventative control up front. We go through the client's fin personal financial statements, right? We make sure they actually have a cash flow stream, right? So they can pay it back. We do all those kind of up front. So that's kind of preventative. But we, uh, we might take collateral. So if they do default, we have an asset in our hands that we can actually use to offset the loss, right? So... And then we monitor their, you know, we monitor their life, right? And see how they're doing and are they making their payments? Are they late? Just like, just like the bank would do with any of you, right? So, so I'm just giving you an example of a type of uh, risk area and the types of controls. So you'd have some kind of monitoring reporting afterwards, uh, but you want to have the preventative stuff in place, right? So, so the internal auditor would look to see, do you have these things in place and are they actually working, right? Are they actually happening? 
Um, if you say you do, you know, some kind of pre-loan financial analysis of a client, the internal auditors might go and look at client files and see if you actually did a financial. Are they actually being done? Are they complete? Or, you know, are they authorized or whatever is required, right? So that's one of the preventative steps. Um, and, uh, so again, it has nothing to do with financial statements or tax or anything. This is a risk area and the board and senior managers want to know if it's being done right, right? So so that's that's just one simple example. It's hard to generalize. And then they produce a report at the end and they, they're required to, if they have a, if they see any weaknesses or opportunities for improvement, they're required to provide some kind of recommendations um, and uh, for management to implement. So, so it's a, I'm sure people who are, being audited are nervous. Uh, that's natural. It's also an imposition on their time, right? Because most people don't have spare time in their job, right? Most people are probably have more work than they have time to do it to start with. And then you have an auditor pop in and want to talk to you, look at your files or, you know, get information from you. That's a pain in the neck, right? So yeah, I mean, it's, it's still, it's not a happy day necessarily when you're going to get audited, right? But the, the process nowadays is quite collaborative. They work around as best they can, people's time and schedules and so on. And the idea is to improve the operation, right? So it's not really about finding out who's screwing up or if somebody's getting somebody in trouble. Now we can, if we have time, we can talk a bit about ethics and fraud because you may, auditors do occasionally see those types of things happening, right? And then that's another whole thing, but it's not the primary uh, objective. Um, Okay. So uh, I don't know. I go on and on. No, it's uh, you're very passionate. I, I I love it. I appreciate it. No, I, I think you mentioned something called risk, right? Um, and obviously risk, I think for the average worker, the average staff member, maybe they're not even who's going through their first internal audit might not even realize that whatever they're doing, whether it's paperwork, conversing with the client, the way they email your IT department, Maybe speak to mm -hmm. me about risk and, and even governance. What, is, what role is that in the context of audits? Yeah, well, so internal audit is all risk-based, right? So it's you select the audit, you're going to, the area you're going to audit based on risk, relative risk within the organization. And then when you get into that area, you're sort of testing the higher risk areas of their, whatever it is they're doing, right? But, but you're right, most people... Well, nowadays, I would say there's a much higher awareness of risk as a term than there used to be because it gets so much publicity generally. Um, so um, you've got kind of multiple questions in that question. When The way it relates to governance is, quite simply, the governance or expectations. So the Securities Commission lists the duties of a board member, and one of the duties of a board is to understand the principal risks of the organization and ensure that they're mitigated, properly mitigated. So it's right there as a board, you need to know what are the principal risks. Now, a principal risk would be the top 10 or the top five or whatever it is, like the big ones that could really get the company in trouble or the organization in trouble, whether it's not a company per se, right? So you are expected to do that as a board member. So that's where it falls into governance. Governance is about direction and control. So control includes managing risk right? Or overseeing it. Management manages it. Board oversees it. So, um, so, and internal audit contributes to that role um, uh, by providing you some kind of assurance that the risks internally are reasonably well managed. Um, 
Um, I've now forgotten the rest of your question. I've linked it to governance. No, now. we were. I um, was just asking Brian about risk and governance. I mean, as a general sense, I guess yeah. I'm trying to see if the audience can kind of wrap their head around what I thought was just a, a yeah. specific subject, and it's really quite general because. If you're a company owner or you're somebody who works in a large company or even a small company, internal audits, the function of that is really, like you said, to help and identify weaknesses, risks, uh, something that could take down the organization, either what you know, we're talking like lawsuits or some kind of privacy breach, negative publicity, maybe, maybe uh, dig down into that for me. Yeah, I mean, that's so as a senior management and a board member, you really don't want to see your company in the paper or in nobody reads newspapers anymore, but in the media, right? <laughs> right. You don't really want to see them in the media, right? And so internal audit, you could say part of the role is to help keep you out of the media, right? By finding these, these weaknesses before they blow up on you, right? And helping to identify them and, and, uh, and fix them. Now, that's also management's job. So if I if I were running an IT shop, I wouldn't be relying on internal audit to come in and find my weaknesses. That would be part of my job, right? To make sure I have those those risk areas properly managed. That's part of your job. But what internal audit does is they come in from the outside, right? So they come in from they work for the company, but they're coming in from outside because they don't work in IT, right? And now they're going to have an independent, objective look at what the controls are that you've put in place, okay? So, um, so when they provide an opinion on that, it has a bit more value and weight maybe than the head of IT saying that they have the, those controls in place because the head of IT runs the operation. He or she is not independent, right? They, so you know, if you're if you're the manager of an area, and I ask you how your organization's running, is it do you, are you managing your your risk well? Generally, you get a pretty positive response, right? I mean, it's not that people are trying to mislead people, but you're biased because it's your organization, right? So that internal audit being independent, um, you know, brings a more objective look and say, yeah, but maybe you need to tighten up here and there. So it, and it happens at the board level. I mean, CEO reports to the board are generally 90% positive about all the great news that's going on in the company. You know, that's just natural, sure, right? Sure. And the CEO will now, I've never worked with a crooked CEO, but I mean, there are crooked CEOs just like there are crooked everything else, right? Yeah. But but a um, but a, a good CEO will also flag for the board, you know, a big issue. So one of the organizations involved in had a had a had a breach, some you know, kind of like a hacker breach, right? And they accessed some client files. Um, and the IT people figured that out, found out that they did that, right? So that was brought to the board's attention. The CEO didn't make high it, he brought it to the board's attention because there's a hugely sensitive issue, right? Um, but my point though is that, that the CEO, the CFO are not independent. What they're telling you is generally what they want to tell you, right? So internal audit being objective and independent can tell you from their perspective what's going on. And I've never had to I sort of, significantly disagree with a CEO, but I would share things that maybe hadn't been shared before um, with the board. Um, and likewise, for a CEO, you don't know what's going. I mean, you, Garrett, are a CEO of your company, right? You have 20 employees. You don't know what each employee is doing every day. You don't have time to know that, right? Right. And if you ask them, you're probably getting 
generally good news from them, right? right. They're telling you all the great work they're doing, right? Yeah. And, and I'm not saying they're lying or being, you know, mis- deliberately misleading you, but they're also not inclined necessarily. It's not necessarily human nature to come and say, well, I really did a really bad job today, uh, Garrett, you know, I, uh, I let that thing break down, you know, so they're going to, if there, if there was a breakdown, they're going to try and fix it and deal with it. Right? So, so anyway, there, it, it, human nature is, is not necessarily objective. So I'm not saying I don't trust people, but there's a line we use and you'll hear this a lot, not just from internal auditors, but you hear this from governance and board trust, but verify, right? Yes, so yes. part of the verify is, is internal audit in an organization that has one. So, so if you don't have internal audit, if you're too small, because it, there is a cost, right? If you want to bring on another employee, if you have a 20 or 30 person employee, you know, company, you don't necessarily want to bring on another employee just to be your internal auditor. That's a, a cost, it's benefits and everything else, HR, all that stuff. You have to, someone has to supervise them, right? So you can contract, right? So you can contract people and you may say in a small company, I only need one small audit a year because really there's not most of the risks I can, with it's a small company like that, I can keep my fingers on myself as a CEO because there's, there's, it's not big enough that I can't keep my fingers on. But I want someone objective and independent to look at something each year just to give me a little extra comfort, right? And it's really all about helping you sleep at night, right? So we as, as a CEO, you, you, you know, it's useful for you too because you helps you sleep at night, right? So you might bring somebody in to say, just look at our financial controls, right? Look at how we... Look at how our payables, receivables, the basic cash handling process and things like that. You might say, just look at that one area this year, right? Small audit, but hey, cash, man. <laughs> the number one thing that disappears in a company is cash. Yeah. No, now, most, sure. there's not a lot of cash around anymore, but uh, but but asset misappropriation is the number one fraud, right? So, most, uh, so uh, you know, just have somebody look at that. And then you might say the next year, okay, well, let's look at... Uh, you know, if you had property, let's look at asset management, see how we manage our inventories or something like that. Right. So, you know, you can bring in, you could get pay 30, 40 grand. You can probably get a little audit done and, you know, helps you sleep at night. And it's kind of an internal audit because it's you, it's you managing it. You're overseeing it. They report to you or report to your board if you have a board. Did you know there's a big difference between investing in real estate and becoming a real estate investor? People become real estate investors all the time. They get into a flip or conversion project or even dealing with long-term tenants and they come back to us to tell us the same thing. It's like having another full-time job. I don't know about you, but that's not what we call investing. Investing in real estate is about having your money work for you in a way that is passive, consistent, most importantly, hands-off. So which one are you? Do you wanna be a real estate investor or do you want to invest in real estate? For those that are open to investing in real estate and having your money work for you, listen up. Garrett Wong has spent decades helping thousands of property owners navigate the ins and outs of property investing and management through his award-winning company, Upper Edge Property Management. Their new division, Wong Capital, is currently involved in multiple projects, from single-family flips to multifamily development. Are you looking for a healthy return on your invested capital or perhaps becoming a joint venture partner? If so, go to www.wongcapitalcorp.com forward slash invest to book a time to speak with Garrett and his team to see if there's a fit. Once again, the link is www.wongcapitalcorp.com forward slash invest. Now, back to the show. 
we've mentioned boards several times. Now you're seeing you're sitting on the other side. Speak to me in your experience how important that collaboration point is between board management, you know, ensuring effective audit and governance processes. Yeah. So, so first of all, boards exist as an intermediary of essentially, I'm going way back to the Adam Smith agency theory from hundreds years ago, but boards essentially exist as the intermediary between the, what they call the principals, right? The people that supply the money, right? The shareholders or the funders or the taxpayer or whatever, right? And management, right? So, so boards like the intermediary, right? So there could be a natural conflict because management wants, I'll, I'll be very, I'm being a bit facetious here, but management wants to have the maximum amount of money available to them to do their work and do the minimum amount of work. Um, so if, if, so if you just talked about return on return on assets or return on, uh, um, investment, you know, it, the best thing for management would be a very low target to achieve, um, and have lots of money to spend to get there. Right. So, Obviously, at the other end, they want to provide as little money as possible and get the maximum return. As a shareholder, I don't want to give you millions of dollars. If I can give you 10 grand and get 25% return on my investment, I'm happy. Management doesn't want to have to do that, right? So the board sits in the middle and says, okay, here's what we expect. Here's how we're going to manage. Here are the, here's the direction we're giving management. Here's the controls. And here's what we expect, right? So, so I'm really going back to the old days. Um, so when you talk about collaboration, there could be a natural um, sort of conflict, but the best organizations have a, it's a collaborative approach. The board and manage, board is there, first of all, to oversee management, right? The board could say no. They should say no once in a while if management's off the rails, but it should really be a collaborative exercise. Likewise, audit under that, it should be collaborative. Do we all agree these are the risk areas or these are the things we want to do? If, if the internal auditors provide recommendations, management should be implementing. So the board should be comfortable that management's going to implement them, right? Um, and uh, that's kind of the ultimate test, right? Does management take the audit seriously? Um, but the whole thing should be a, a collaborative exercise. We call it a triangular relationship because as a head of internal audit, I report to the board, but I also have a CEO and I need to work with them every day, right? And the senior management team. So I have this kind of triangular relationship and it, it could be conflicted, but ideally it's collaborative, right? And um, now boards can get too collaborative with management. And, you know, when you go back in history, um, back into the nineties before the first governance revolution, you know, one of the findings of some of the early, of some of the corporate collapses in those days, like Barings Bank and, and so on, was that boards were too collaborative with management, right? They were too close to management. There wasn't enough separation. Essentially, the CEO picked the board members. They were all his buddies. It was all men then, right? They were all his buddies. He put them on the board and basically a board meeting consisted of the CEO telling the board all about what's going on and then they have lunch and go play golf, right? That's the old days of what it was like to be on a board. Right. Nowadays, that doesn't work. Right. The regulators, the securities commissions, you know, the other regulators expect boards now and shareholders expect boards. There's too many stories now, proxy fights and everything else. Right. The shareholders expect the board to do a job. Right. And you have to do some work. Right. But it's not expected to be a conflict in relationship. It's expected to be a collaborative relationship. The board should be helping management as well as so, so in a way policing them. But it's not 
policing them in a sense, like, because most management's highly professional, right? They're not going to go off the rails and go rogue in any way, but, but the job, the board's job is also to provide a degree of control and oversight um, over management. Yeah. You know, I, I, when I think about boards and I've served on several, I'm currently on a few, um, I find that boards don't have a lot of technical knowledge necessarily about the company itself. They might be uh, to a certain extent, you know, reading, reading financial statements and, and voting and things like that. How do you find, uh, or how does a board even decide what area from that high level, like, do they have to take direction from management, but really that's where I'm, I'm you know, is there a sort of a conflict yeah. there? You're right. So, so, the reality is management spends, you know, 2000 hours a year plus on the business and board members spend about 120 hours a year. There is no contest, right? There's no way a board member knows what's going on in the organ or knows the business better than management. And it doesn't matter. I'm on two charity boards. It's the same thing, right? I show up for a monthly meeting or a quarterly meeting, right? And they, they work there every day, right? So they know way more than me, right? So the role becomes more of, you know, question and answer. Am I getting good answers? Am I getting reporting that gives me enough comfort level that, that, uh, that they're doing the job well? Um, is there a good strategy? Am I comfortable with the strategy? Are they following, executing the strategy? Now, when it comes to internal audit and the risk areas, I don't, as a board member, I don't do the risk assessment, right? That's management's job. And it's managed to manage the risk. What I want to know is, do they have a good process? Is it complete and thorough? And, and when they give me their list of the principal risk, which is the top, again, I keep saying the top 10 or whatever it is, does that make sense to me as an outsider? You know, when I know what I know about the environment and the, and the, you know, does that make sense, right? Does it make sense? Does it a good process to get there? And then do they have controls in place to mitigate those risk areas, right? So one of the things we board members bring is we've worked for a lot of other organizations, most senior management, many of them have spent their whole career with that one organization, right? They don't have that breadth of knowledge. They know their organization in depth, but they don't have the breadth, right? But we have, we work for other organizations. We've seen a lot of other things, you know, so we bring that to the table. A friend of mine who served on many boards used to say, um, a board meeting is a meeting when the wise people meet with the smart people. So the smart people were the, you know, the senior management, right? The wise people are the board members, right? The wise people meet the smart people at a board meeting. Um, and, uh, you know, so you do what you can. So when it comes to internal audit and risk management, the board only has limited knowledge, right? They're relying on management to provide good information. Internal audit helps to ensure that information's reasonably accurate and, and correct and makes sense. An internal audit will propose an audit plan based on what they see as the risk areas and you know, the board has to decide, does it look reasonable, right? And it's, there's no guarantees that you're, you're right when you're on a board. Okay. But, you know, you talk about fiduciary duties and it's all about, did you do the work? Did you do some due diligence? Did you take, you know, make a reasonable effort to, uh, to understand what's going on? Um, you're not expected to understand it as well as management, right? Right, right. Um, so, you know, I you mentioned that there's um, an international organization, international standards, maybe speak to me about that because in that context, then when you have this conversation that's going on between management and the board, what are we auditing? What are we looking at right now? How is it going to be audited? This overlying um, 
I, I mean, almost like a code of conduct, standards, ethics. Maybe speak to me about about that. Yeah. Then international. So the standards yeah. do include a code of ethics for internal auditors. Okay. Right? So, um, and I mean, one of the worst things you could have would be an unethical internal auditor. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure it happens. Like having a dirty, like having a dirty cop, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I've had to remove, you know, an internal auditor in my career because I couldn't trust him anymore. Um, and I can't have that, right? You've right. got to be clean. Anyway, um, um, so... So the international standards, the IIA, the Institute of Internal Auditors, has international standards. They're they're not prescriptive; they're principles based. Um, but they'll talk about how an internal audit function should be set up, generally, and what the components are. And then they talk about how an audit should be done. Right? What are the processes? But it's not prescriptive down into the detail. Right? And um, be, the reason for that is that internal audit needs to be adaptable to every organization. So there are standards, but they're, they'll say things like you need to communicate um, your, you, well, talk about risk, your audit plan needs to be risk-based, but it doesn't tell you how to do that, right? It doesn't give you specifics, right? And, um, you know, it says you have to produce a report at the end. You have to communicate with the audit committee of the board and so on about the results. But it doesn't tell you what that should look like, right? Whereas the external auditors, the financial statement auditors, it's all prescribed in their standards. The audit report, if you're on the board of several companies, the audit report's exactly the same. You get for every company, right? This is the same report. That's not the way it works in internal audit. And the reason is because every organization that has internal audit is so different. You've got to be adaptable, right? But the basic underlying structure needs to be the same. And the one of the standards requires at least on a five-year cycle, an external review of your internal audit function, which is no different than any most other professions that require like a peer review of some kind, right? Sure, so sure. you're required to have somebody come in and they will look at, they'll basically audit the auditors. They'll take a look at your internal audit function to ensure that you're conforming with the, the standards. Um, and uh, and they'll tell you who you and they'll tell your audit committee where you're not, right? And uh, But again, it's not, very prescriptive. It's more print. It says, you know, it'll say that to draw conclusions on an audit, you need to accumulate sufficient, reliable evidence. It doesn't tell you what the evidence is, but you need to accumulate that type of evidence to draw a conclusion, right? It needs to be sufficient, reliable. Um, there's a few other, you know, requirements, but, but you get the idea. Look, it's, um, so the practice of internal auditing actually around the world is essentially the same, but it's adaptable within each organization, right? So, so um, that's why I mean I could lead the internal audit for five different organizations in three different industries, and I could still do it, right? I wasn't an expert in those businesses. Well, you get to be after a while, but uh, but um, I know how to lead an internal audit function. I know what they should be doing. So I know what the relationship with the board and audit committee should be. Okay. So, um, yeah. So let me um, let me switch gears just slightly. Even though I know it's not your area of comfort, but you know, obviously, I'm a real estate investor. I've been a realtor before. We do have the Manitoba Securities Commission here in Manitoba, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. really oversees the fiduciary side of that regulation mm-hmm. for real estate agents, brokers. Mm-hmm. Really, the end of the day, to make sure a consumer is not hurt. If you could extrapolate, knowing that that organization exists, okay, that's fine. But if you were brought in for a real estate organization, even if it's the largest, I mean, pick your your largest brokerage out there, 
What do you think, or if you could imagine the types of risk there could be within a real estate organization outside of your standard (laughs) embezzlement? Well, again, I don't want to uh, go off on another tangent here, but I mean, we know that there's financial risks, right? There's lots of money going through there, but could could you see there'd be risks in in what, like privacy breaches or other things with contracts? Yeah, so I mean, the... The basic, yeah, I mean, IT, so if I was doing a risk assessment in or, and I facilitate risk assessments in organizations I don't know a lot about, right? But that we'll break it into categories and say, okay, there's strategic risk. So uh, there's operational risk. You know, within operations, there's risk of things that go wrong. There's financial risk, um, you know, the loss of money uh, somehow or the waste or overpaying for things. There's um, There's fraud. Um, there's compliance with regulations and laws. You need to manage that risk somehow, right? To make sure that there isn't a breach there. And then the fifth one would be IT generally, right? So nowadays IT is a huge risk area. Uh, you've got ransomware, cyber hacking, all kinds of stuff, privacy breaches, all kinds of things that are risk areas. So sort of work through those categories. And it's hard for me to be specific, you know, about an organization I've never worked in real estate investing. Um, the one thing I would say is that um, it, I'm a bit surprised that that the Securities Commission doesn't have more requirements for some kind of independent assurance for these companies, like internal audit. So OSFI, which regulates financial services like the insurance companies, the big the banks, and so on, they're very clear in their regulations about the role of the board the role of, a, of an independent assurance function like internal audit and the type of work they need to do and the type of reporting on risks that need to go to senior management and the board, right? And they, and OSFI itself will do audits, compliance type audits in those companies. Um, so I'm a little bit surprised that that doesn't go on in the real estate sector, but anyway. Well, I um, mean, it, it does to a certain extent, but again, I mean, I'm I'm a broker as well, but limited to the act of property management. Okay, so again, we we have to get our books audited each year. Um, a, an accountant has to turn in a report, right? Uh, and that's in by a deadline. But it's a very scripted, checklisted report. I've always found it's so general; it's almost yeah. too general. Like there might be ten things on it, and the auditor. And this is more like a notice to reader type thing, but they just have to ensure, you know, let's say 10 checkboxes. But if it's slightly outside that gray area, they don't actually have to report it because it didn't specifically ask for it with that checkbox, if you know what I'm saying. So I've always found that, again, we know that money changes hands and there's lots of, you know, dishonest people out there. Depending on what type of account you get to simply fill out this one page report, now your your audit is done. It's it's finished, right? And you've now satisfied the requirements of the Securities Commission. But what about your organization, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. believe, unless uh, I don't know my own auditing process within yeah. a management company, that there's anything else other than, you know, obviously my insurance company wants to make sure they want to see my management contract, make sure that there isn't anything with undue risk there, but nothing in terms of yeah. an internal audit. Yeah. 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 So you're a small company. So, you know, I surprised you don't have an internal audit comp- uh, function there. Um, in terms of risk areas. So um, what I 
suggest people do is look at, so risk relates to objectives. So you've got at the corporate level, but within your businesses, right? So what you need, what you do is you look, I, I try to drop the word risk because when you say risk, what are the risks in your operation? So if you said to one of your employees, what are the risks in your operation? They're probably going to go cross-eyed and look at you like, what the heck are you talking about? But if you say to them something like, okay, let's just have a conversation about what could go wrong here. What could go wrong here? Um, you, you tend to get a better conversation because people like to talk about what they do, right? So what could go wrong? That you work in, you know, you're a step in a process, right? So what could go wrong here? Um, and, you know, most people are honest and they want to, you know, make things as good as possible. So that's the kind of conversation we, I would have, you know, with frontline employees or managers, mid-level or managers, I, would, I wouldn't say, so what are the risks in your area? Because I sound like an auditor when I do that and they don't know what I mean, right? They don't, what do you mean by risk? And I have to explain what a risk is. So I would say, okay, so what are you trying to accomplish here? What are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to get? What's your object? Like, why do you exist? What are you trying to accomplish? And then what could go wrong? Like, what could get in the way of that happening? What could get in the way of you being successful doing your job, right? Okay, so let's explore those a little bit. What could get in the way? Oh, okay. So these these, these two or three things, those would be bad if they happened, right? You That would really hurt your, you know, your chances of success, right? Okay, so what do you have in place to reduce those from happening, the likelihood of those happening? So what do you, what do you have in place? You know, what do you do to stop those from happening, right? So you try and use non-audit language when you're having these conversations and explore them. And people, you know, like, I don't identify risk. <laughs> Generally, the people that work there identify the risks. Right, right. You know, and then they tell me what they've got in place to mitigate them, to reduce the likelihood of them happening or the impact of them happening, right? Okay. So you, you measure them usually on two factors. Usually it's the likelihood. How likely is it to happen? And then if it does happen, how bad could it be, which is impact, right? So usually you'll, you'll, you'll measure them on those two because there are a lot of things. Okay, so what are the risks that someone could steal pens from your supply cabinet, right? Pretty high. I would say that probably happens just about every day, right? Yeah. And do you care? Probably right. not because the control to manage that, like having people have to, they have to return their, you know, their empty pen before they can get a new one. The control, the cost exceeds the value of the asset, right? right? So that's probably happening a lot, using your photocopier for personal use, right? Like, you know, that kind of stuff. So that's likely, those are risk areas, right? right. That's lost to the company. But it, the likelihood's pretty high, but the impact is almost nil. Right? Sure. You just okay. write it off, right? Yeah. Right. On the other hand, you know, you could have a fire and or you could have an IT breach probably once in your lifetime, and you're out of business, right? Or you're shut down or somebody has a ransomware attack and you're out of business. You know, we have hospitals that get in Canada that get these ransom attacks and they can't use their systems for like a week. Well, right. the impact is massive, right? Now, how are you going to deal with that? Okay, so what do we have in place? I'm not going to bother with the control over the supply cabinet. Well, a little bit of control. But yeah, no, for sure. But I'm going to invest in these other ones, you know, so you... You can even plot these on a graph. They call that a heat map where you got high impact, high likelihood. And actually ransomware and some of these cyber attacks are pretty much high likelihood and high impact today. But, you know, you got a red zone there and then you've got the orange and yellow and then you've got a green zone, which are risks that are low likelihood, low impact. Um, don't worry about it. Right? So, so okay. 
Yeah. So I ask people to work in the areas and, uh, you know, and then, you know, your senior management team, I've been part of senior management team. So this management team sits down together and says, okay, what do we see? What do we see of the risk? What could go wrong? You know, and each division or each operation within that group has its own set, right? But uh, what do we see and how big is it at the corporate level, right? So you'll have insurance to mitigate some risks, right? But it doesn't mitigate everything. <clears throat> and by the way, insurance won't pay. Insurance won't pay unless you, you've taken reasonable steps to mitigate it. Right. Right. But at the end of the day, a report is created, right? And... The report is given to the board, to the stakeholders, to whomever. It has to be acted upon in some capacity. What are the recommendations that are included in an internal audit? Yeah, so there are recommendations, um, typically recommendations to address any areas of potential improvement. And they, they, they may be prioritized. Some may be really important and some may be like minor things you, you could do better, right? So they're probably prioritized. Um, some take a long time to implement. If if it's some may require a whole new computer application or something, you know, that could take two or three years to implement. But but yeah, so there should be some action plan out of there from management that commits to some kind of resolution um, of the issue, right? So the board wants to see what the management's got an action plan, and then usually the internal audit function will do some follow up, you know, over time and say, okay, you know, this was a recommendation from two years ago. Management's done nothing about it, so. If I'm on the board, I'm kind of alarmed about that. If it's significant, you right? Know, so then, yeah. So there's a follow-up process there too. Um, okay. Again, based on significance, because some of the in, internal audit recommendations may be fairly minor issues that somebody could fix like the next day. You know, right? Some may be, some may require a significant investment and uh, and may take years to implement. Um, so, okay. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, you uh, you mentioned um, how things have changed over the years, and you know it used to be that you know good cop bad cop type of thing. Maybe before we wrap up here, uh, speak to me about emerging trends. You know, based on your experience, what what's happening? What's changing in the industry now uh, in auditing and governance that could maybe impact the industry yeah. as a whole. Yeah, so I mean, the biggest development I would say in the last ten years is uh, digitization and now AI, right? Artificial okay. intelligence, and uh, and I'm not an expert in AI because I retired before it really hit the fan. But uh, but uh, but before that, the whole ability to analyze 100 percent of a population through digital analysis, right? Data analysis tools um, versus you know sampling and so on. So for auditors, if you have the technology, you can, you can, you know, rather than pulling a sample of something to test it, to see if the controls are working, you can look at the whole population, right? You do download mm. it, the whole analysis, right? But likewise, the risks are there too, right? Because the more we rely on this data, the more risk that if it gets screwed up somehow, either internally or by somebody external, um, you know, the bigger impact it has, right? So I think this whole digital world that we're in, and now the evolution to AI is the biggest um, kind of evolution that's going on in the last 10 years. And uh, I don't know much about AI other than I've played with ChatGPT a little bit, but but um, um, I would say uh, I, I know internal auditors now are educating themselves fast on this to help 
boards and senior management understand the risks in AI and what they need to have in place. I would flip that around, though, and say that there's huge potential from what I can tell with AI, right? There's huge potential. Well, it's it's a tool, right? And I, I'm just looking at, I mean, now, it, I mean, yes, I started with ChatGPT, but there's entire data analysis sets that you can do. You can literally upload a file, yeah. you know, ter- you know, gigabytes yeah. of information, whatever it is, thousands yeah. and thousands of pages. And in 10 seconds, it t- sort of tells you. Now, again, we yeah. could get into a whole nother podcast. How accurate is it? Are you sure that the AI is giving you what you want to yeah. get? And, yeah. and how are you auditing yeah. that sample? I mean, you just go down a huge rabbit hole. Yeah, and I, I'm not an expert in how to do any of that. But but I, I mean, I sit on boards where AI is in use, you know, so, you know, the questions are there, right? So what do we have in place? So what data are we uploading? Like, don't upload anything confidential, you know, proprietary, private. Be careful because that could be exposed, right, externally. Um, be careful what you're using it for, right? Um, but on the other hand, like, if we can make use of it, then go for it. Like you said, you get... You can get all kinds of, I mean, your grocery store is using it, right? You know, you go online, I go to Canadian Tire, excuse me, I shouldn't be plugging a company, but I might go to Canadian Tire's website and look up lawnmowers. And the next day I'm on the TSN sports website and lawnmower ads are popping up. Like they're using it, right? Yeah. And they're using it to their own advantage. Um, and uh, um, I don't know how they do it, but they're doing it. Um, and uh, so... You know, there's huge opportunities there, um, and uh, so, yeah, I think I think boards and organizations need to work on both sides of this very aggressively. One is finding out how you can maximize the benefit, and on the other hand side, understanding what the risks are about AI and making sure that you're uh, you've got good controls around that, um, and you're not uh, creating more problems. And like you said. Check the check the answers you get. The little bit I've done with ChatGPT, I didn't yep. always get the right answer. I've tested it, and it doesn't always give you the right answer. So it, what it gives you is fast, and sometimes it's amazing. But hmm, and where where is the uh, input going? Right. I I mean, as a property management company, we could go down that mm-hmm. rabbit hole too. Sure. Uh, I recently let go a bunch of employees, um, and and not just because of ChatGPT, but I saw extensive use of it. Um, I didn't even think about the other side of it, Brian, where maybe they're asking certain questions on how do I say this to a certain client and mm-hmm. who knows, you know, where's mm-hmm. that information going, right? Now you're talking mm-hmm. about privacy and it, is it out there on the net now because you've asked ChatGPT or is it a closed conversation? And that's just yeah. day-to-day operations, never mind in the context of yeah. uh, an internal audit. Yeah. So, I mean, internally, any organization needs to have some kind of policies around this. You know, it's like, you know, internet use. I was, you know, I've been in the business world long enough to know when internet first became available in companies, right? And we, everyone was concerned that no one would get any work done because yep. basically had cable TV on their desk, right? So, um, so you know, there were policies around what you could do on the internet within a company and there still are, right? You can't go to certain sure. types of websites and certain things are blacklisted or whitelisted, right, within your organization. So um, so you can and can't get there. Um, and you can't download software usually within a company yourself. Your IT people have to do that. Yep. You can't plug sticks in. There's all these things, right? Um, and the same should apply with, um, with your use of AI, right? 
Yeah. Um, should, there needs to be a whole policy structure out of it. The problem right now is most of us don't know what those are because we don't even know what it could do. Right. We don't know what the limits should be because we don't know what the limits are. <laughs> so. Yeah. So now you've got an internal audit and you have to worry about is AI being used? Is the auditor using AI as a tool to analyze? And then what is the the risks and, and everything, right? I mean, it just, it, I think it just keeps multiplying. Definitely, it's a, another another whole podcast, I think, all into itself. Yeah, and you need to get somebody who's a real expert in AI to talk about that. So. Well, maybe one day. But uh, yeah, but for today, I, you know, uh, we've, we, uh, we're running out of time here. I want to wrap it up. Um, I'd like to thank you, of course, for coming on. But before we, we stop, I always ask every guest this question, and I want to hear what you have to say. So this is the Investing to Win podcast. How do you define success, Brian? And what does winning look like for you? Um, wow. And you know what? I wasn't prepared for this question, but I should have been. So uh, I'm kind of a softie at my age. Um, so if you talk about investing, obviously, uh, now I'm now a conservative investor because I'm semi-retired, right? So uh, um for me, it's, I don't want to lose anything. <laughs> That's a win. <laughs> I can stay ahead of inflation, which is tough. That's a win for me right now. Um, um, when you talk generally, I, I'm, a, I'm a collaborator generally, so I like a win-win scenarios, right? So uh, and I'm involved with charities. I'm passionate about children, um, maximizing the worth of children. So, uh, you know, if we can make... I, I I'll, for me, the biggest win, I have five grandkids who I spend a lot of time with. If we can make the world better, safer, and more successful for children, I think that's a huge win for us as a society. So I'm not so much into my own personal victories anymore. Um, uh, I just want to have fun and play around and do this kind of thing, help people out. But uh, 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 this is way off our topic today, but make the world better for children and safer for children. Hey, it was an open question and I love your answer. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, so Brian, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. Uh, open up a world that I didn't even know existed. And I'm sure people who are tuning in at the beginning uh, got something different than what they, they came for. So thank you very much. Good. Okay. Hope, uh, hope it was of help and of interest. See you guys. I hope you enjoyed the episode today on the Investing to Win podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to this on. If this episode made you think of another investor, take a screenshot and share this podcast episode with them. Investing to Win is not only about helping you to win more, but win actually stands for wise. Investors, network. It's where we help our investors build a hands-off portfolio and have passive investments work for them. To see how you can potentially partner with us, go to www.wongcapitalcorp.com forward slash invest to book a time to speak with Garrett and his team to see if there's a fit. Once again, the link is www.wongcapitalcorp.com forward slash invest. All links can be found in the description below. Until next time.